Well, that was really great. I want to sing another song. Daniel, can you lead us in it? Jesus loves me. This I know. For by tell so little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Just the voice. Thanks, team. It was really interesting to watch all of you sing that song. <laughs> Particularly those of you who have put in the category of older folks around here. I'm sorry, I'm just kind of putting you in that category. I just saw some of you with your eyes closed, and you were, you were feeling it, weren't you? Uh, we, we all, do you remember learning that song as a kid? How many of you learned that song when you were a kid? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it goes way back, doesn't it? The thing that um, surprises me about that song is we teach it to our children. And I'm not sure that they even have the capacity to get it. Yes, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. This I know. I mean, I'm all for teaching my kids, and we taught our kids that song. But frankly... I'm not sure they really could know how much Jesus loves them. It seems to me that it takes a lifetime of challenges and difficulties and heartache and problems and self-reflecting understandings of oneself to really sing that song. Jesus loves me, this I know. My goal for our time together this morning is to set everything up for us to sing that song again and a couple of others about the love of Jesus at the end of our worship. That's all I want to do. I want to just get us ready to sing a couple more songs about Jesus' love for us. In fact, the text we're in, in Mark gets us ready for that. We're actually coming to a point. It's coming to the final act in regards to the uh, story of Jesus and his time on earth. Uh, And we're getting to that point, and Jesus wants us to know exactly who he is and um, how much he loves us. And he wants us to understand there's been so much confusion that we've seen described as people who think that they know who Jesus is and Jesus keeps trying to explain it and trying to explain it. We get to Mark chapter 14 and Mark chapter 15 and we actually see uh, Jesus describing really for the first time to the religious leaders exactly who he is. 
Our text, or part of our text this morning, is in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter, he followed at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself with the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony about that did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? In fact, in other words, they couldn't get the testimony to work out, so they were hoping that Jesus would help them out. But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah? The son of the blessed one. Now, the word blessed one here is, is uh, cryptic for God. They wouldn't use the word. They, they wouldn't even say the word God. They would consider it so sacred and so holy. So they actually used this phrase that everybody knew inferred that. Are you the, the son of God? I am, said Jesus. Where have we heard that before? Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and they beat him. There are several things I want to just point out as we walk through this text this morning. First of all, to point out what the declaration is that we see, the declaration Jesus is making here, an explanation of his character, and then an invitation for us here. And none of it's going to surprise you. In fact, you might just say, hey, Mark, uh, you didn't tell me anything I didn't know. So here goes. I'm going to tell you something you expect me to say. The first is a declaration made by Jesus here, and it is this, Jesus is God, right? I mean, say, I came all the way here this morning through the snow and the cold to hear you say Jesus is God. I knew that one already, and in fact, I'm not surprised that you say it. But the surprise is, is that they didn't expect Jesus to say it. They didn't expect Jesus to claim he was God. They were just simply hoping that he would admit to, be, admit to being a rebel, an insurrectionist. That's what they were hoping for. They didn't think that they would get this windfall of acknowledgement that he would actually say that he's God. And then it comes out of his mouth. It comes right out of his mouth, actually. He, he's the one that says it, and then they've got it. This is blasphemy, and it is it is a capital crime. And they knew that he could now be, be uh, 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 put on trial, at least, at least in their circles. But they wanted to take it a step further. They, 
they wanted to try him in a civil, civic court because it was Pilate that had the capacity to actually crucify him, to kill him, and that's what they wanted. But they got this windfall here. They didn't expect it, but Jesus says, essentially, they knew it, I am God. And you say, um, uh, that's no surprise to me, but in our culture today, there are people that actually hoped that Jesus would never say that. You see, there's such, a, there's such an emphasis, I think, in our culture to, can we just take all of these religious faiths and allow them to coexist with one another? I mean, it just sounds so worthwhile. Uh, can we just all basically say, you know, we all essentially believe in the same God. Can't we all just get along with one another? And, you know, that would actually work until Mark 14. And in Mark 14, Jesus steps in to the longings of anybody who would say, let's just get along with one another. And he says, I want you to know this. I am not a prophet. I am not a great teacher. I'm not just simply someone who has compassion for everyone. And I'm not going to harm your real estate. But you've got to know this. I am God. And until that point, it was possible for all of us to say, can't we all just basically believe that we're worshiping the same God? And then Jesus steps in, this human that enters time and space in history, and he says, I am. I am. And he asserts himself as the one, the one person who is the necessary ingredient for anyone to live a life characterized by faith that has any authenticity at all to it. You see, the Jews didn't expect Jesus to say that. There are people in our culture that would wish that he wouldn't have said that. But for, for those of us in this room and around the world, we are so grateful that he did say that. Because if Jesus is God, he makes sense of life. In fact, in Scripture it says, he is the one in whom all things hold together, it says in the book of Colossians. And in Romans it says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Jesus is the one who holds all things together. King Jesus is the one that explains, that helps us to understand everything about the rest of this book. If Jesus isn't God, we should just close with one more song and walk out of here. But Jesus is God, and he says, here I am, I am the king. We look more closely at it, and we actually see in the text they were asking him all, quest all kinds of questions to which he never replied. He never replied to anyone. And then they came to the question that really, that where they're asking, well, do you think you're God? And then he opens his mouth. That's the one I need to answer because that's the truth you need to know. I am not a prophet, not a rebel leader. I am God. Now, that was enough for the Jews, but it wouldn't be enough for Pilate. You see, you can't get killed, crucified for blasphemy. So they come to Pilate, and they ask the question, okay, Pilate, 
um, uh, what will you do with this person? And they don't use the blasphemy uh, defense anymore, the blasphemy case anymore. They go back to the case that they never could prove. They go back to the case that he's a rebel leader and a threat to Pilate. Pilate gets it. He knows that Jesus is a threat to them, and there are the references to the king of the Jews. But there's more pressure on Pilate than that. So he listens to the question because he doesn't want rebellion to take over among these people he's trying to keep a grip on. And so he asks Jesus, you know, who are you? You know, they're calling you the king of the Jews. And you see this answer that Jesus gives in verse 2 of chapter 15, you have said so. That's the only thing he says. Everything else is quiet on him. Some say that you are the king of the Jews. And his reply is, you have said so. It seems like kind of a cryptic answer, doesn't it? It, it actually is. It's intentionally qualified. Literally, some of the scholars who understand the language far better than I do say this, you do well to ask that question, Pilate. He's inviting a conversation. You know, that's an interesting question you've just asked me. But he doesn't go any deeper with, with Jesus. He wants to hear what the crowd has to say because the crowd is the most important thing to him. And we discover what the Jews hoped for, that Pilate wouldn't be principled, he would just simply be pragmatic. And Pilate's pragmatism leads him to the place where he knows the only alternative for him is to follow the crowd and crucify Jesus. This story is full of gross injustice. This story is full of the most absurd sentencing. The reason why Jesus dies is because of who he said he was. The reason why Jesus died is because he's God. That is the reason why he died. Now, they perceived it as weakness. In fact, in chapter 15, verse 31, the people are mocking him, and they say, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. And that is both true and false at the same time. He can't save himself? Do you mean he was powerless? That's false. He can't save himself? You mean he won't save himself? That's true. Because he's God, and he knows what we need. He knows what is essential for us to actually live life as it was intended to be. And so we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. He cannot save himself, not because of his weakness, but because of his compassion. And now we get to the second thing that I want to say that you already expect me to say. The first is Jesus is God. The second is God is love. God is love. That's what keeps him on the cross. It is his love. You learned that at the same time you learned Jesus loves me, didn't you? God is love and Jesus loves me. I learned those when I was in first grade. I'm not sure we really learned that, though. I'm not sure that has really sunk in as deeply as God wants it to sink in. 
As we come to Holy Week every year, this is the thing God wants to sink in to the way we worship, is that Jesus is God and God is love. Notice what the text points to. I remember as a young person in school, I heard all of these things about the crucifixion. And we've seen movies since then, haven't we, that just portray the violence of the crucifixion, not only unjust, but absolutely violent. <clears throat> you see these movies that are just filled with blood. I remember reading medical articles from doctors that were describing the torture of crucifixion. And it is just a horrific story of it. There's, there's blood all over the place. In fact, Pilate, in order to just uh, make the crowd satisfied, actually had condemned Jesus to Roman flogging. Very few people actually endured that flogging as vicious as Jesus had. So he had to placate the crowd, and Pilate thought he had a great idea to actually have them go away and not kill this innocent man. He had already subjected Jesus to this Roman flogging that more oftentimes killed people than not. And then he's taken to the cross, and we have all of that. I mean, you can just take the, the torture and the agony, and you can just play it out and say, look how he loved, look how he loved. But you look at the text, and you notice it really doesn't say very much about that. The love of Jesus isn't described because he was characterized by pain. The love of Jesus is described in that he was characterized for love for people like this. You take every single square foot of the terrain that is described in this story, and you don't see one lovable character any place. I mean, you've seen the commercials on TV, haven't you? There's this really endearing commercial of these kids for some children's hospital. And there's this little squeaky-voiced kid and he just tells about how grateful he is for this children's hospital. And then there's other kids that come along, and it's like by the time the commercial's over, it's okay, I'll just give you anything. Because they're just such endearing kids. But you look at this story, there is nothing there that would be endearing to any of us. Look at the list of traits that are described here. We're not seeing described the horrific pain of Jesus. We're seeing described the people around Jesus that Jesus is choosing to die for. He's dying, he's dying for people like Pilate, who was this pragmatist who just wanted to hang on to power. He's dying for people like the religious leaders who despised him and couldn't wait for him to be put on the cross. He's dying in the context of soldiers that, found, that gleefully ridiculed him and mocked him and made Jesus the brunt of their jokes, being made to look as foolish as he possibly could so that they could have a great yuck together. He's dying in the midst of people caught up in a moment, seduced by the people around him and yelling, crucify him, crucify him, because their head had just disappeared from their, from their sense of enthusiasm. But just a sense of passion and excitement to the crowd, and they find themselves without a head on their shoulder to comprehend the magnitude of what they were saying. They shall crucify him, crucify him. And there Jesus is in the midst of the crowd. He dies, he dies in the context of disciples who have walked away, and, and Peter, who would deny? 
because he was more fearful than he was courageous. He died in the context of Judas and others who would use Jesus for their personal advantage, acting like a follower um, when there was personal advantage to it or lucrative in some way. I mean, you just look at the whole terrain that is described in this story and you realize love here is defined not based on how much it hurts him, but how much he actually loves us and them. That's what he wants us to hear. That's what he wants us to notice. Is there anything lovable in this story? And Jesus says, yes. Every single participant in that story had Jesus' deepest affection. He looked at all of them and consider them beloved ones. Keller says, the king dies for the rebels. God is love. Did you even notice a part of this story where Jesus says from the cross, God, where are you? What's that all about? You know, scholars have noted how profound even that is, that Jesus would hang on the cross not because he had someone alongside of him saying, it's worth it, it's worth it, it's worth it. Not somebody there to just kind of talk him into it or talk him through it, but to be there all by himself. And it wasn't the courage of another that held him there. It wasn't the sense of regret of the crowd that held him there. No, it was pure love and only love. Nobody else. It was what was in his heart that held him there. And what was in his heart was a crowd of people who were shaking their fist at Jesus. And Jesus says, I will die for you. God is love. Jesus loves me. This I know. And I find myself hoping that I can be one of those people in the crowd just like them that Jesus loves. Don't you ironically say, Boy, I hope I can find myself right there because that's the kind of person that Jesus loves. He loves the mockers, the despisers, the selfish, the those who are filled with shame and regret. He loves every single one of them. Can I be one of them? And this is where the story turns. This is where the story turns from all of us focusing on what it must have been like to, to, for Jesus, to see Jesus, to turn around and watch Jesus seeing us. And looking at every one of us who identify with some part of this story, who actually feel like we belong in that story. Rejecting, rebelling, scorning, despising, walking away from Jesus. We hope we're in that story because the eyes of the story turn from not us looking at Jesus, but Jesus looking at you and pointing at that thing. Yes, that thing, that, that, that thing. 
and saying, still, I die for you. And that regret and say, still, I die for you. And that pain and say, still, I die for you. You are my beloved. You are my beloved. You are my beloved. You are my beloved. And you know what I think we sing? Jesus loves me, this I know in O. Jesus loves me, this I know it can't be true. Not for that. Not. Not possible. No. In this story, we see someone who says, no, even that. Now, we might say, well, well, what about the kind of life I ought to live, the person I ought to be? You know, we'll get to, we'll get to new life in Christ next Sunday. But right now, let's just stay here for the rest of Holy Week. And let's reflect on this reality. Jesus loves me. And I can make a choice, as those in the story could make, to have my identity based on all of the things that I try to do, all of the ways I try to measure up, or I can have my identity based on the fact that I am loved. I can decide my identity is based on the things I do and try to do, or I can have my identity based on Jesus loves me. There's a kingdom of the world, and it's based on what you do and what you try to do. Make sure you measure up. And there's a kingdom based on King Jesus, and it's based on I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. You see, there may be all of those other things that we regret and we feel like are failures in our lives, but they fail. They pale in comparison with the core identity of who I am as a person who lives in the kingdom of God. Before you say anything about what I've done, I want you to know this. I am am loved. That's it. So we're going to spend the rest of this time reflecting on the reality of what that is about. And I'm going to ask you actually to pull out this form right here. And I actually want you to take a little time and I want you to write something out on there. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to, on your notes, just number one, two, three, four, five, six. Right along, one, two, three, four, five, six. And on one side of it, I want you to put on one and two, you have not done enough. Just put that in, you have not done enough. And on the other side of the chart, four, five, and six, I will never love you more than I do now. On the one side, you have not done enough. And on the other side, I will never love you more. You have not done enough. And I will never love you more. 
And here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask yourself, where am I living right now? What is true for me? You see, there's, 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 there's no action point here I'm trying to get you to get to here. I just want you to know where you are right now. What kingdom are you living in? The kingdom of you have not done enough and living with the shame of that and the reminder of that, the oh, if only you knew of that. Or this, I will never love you more. (laughs) I won't. There's nothing you can do. My love is so deep. You are my beloved. I will never, yeah, right now, right now. I will never love you more. What kingdom are you living in? And what do you ask God to do to make the changes you long for to happen? In Mark chapter 15, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked among themselves. He saved others. He can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near him heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, and put it in a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes down to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw How he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. You sing, yes, Jesus. Jesus love.